This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects is the free app that lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download Bloomberg Connects to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome back to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences and cultural experiences and the way they affect their life and work. This episode is A Brush With Tal R. Born Tal Rosenzweig in Tel Aviv in 1967, Tal moved with his family to Denmark when he was a child and after mixed results studying at a private art school in Copenhagen, he eventually went on to study at the Royal Danish Academy of Fine Arts in the Danish capital, graduating in 2000. He continues to live in Copenhagen today. Now, from the start, it was clear to me that Tal R was going to be an artist of very diverse means and expression. He's fundamentally a painter, but he's also made sculptures, and he's even made a long series of what he calls opium beds, which are somewhere between sculpture and furniture, with these bespoke wooden frames and rag rugs, which he finds in Denmark and across Scandinavia, stretched over them. Tal is a painter's painter. He's often mentioned when I ask painters who they draw inspiration from. And I think one of the reasons he's so admired is a certain fleet-footedness. On the one hand, he clearly paints recognisable things, things like railway carriages, human figures, sex shops, landscapes. But on the other hand, there's an abstract vigour about his work, which is all about the stuff of paint, of colour and of mark making. There's also a directness and simplicity about Talar's work that I think many painters seem to seek but struggle to find. But despite that simplicity, he has a knack for creating images that one wants to linger with. He says that he wants his own paintings to be as mysterious to him as they are to the viewer, and they certainly intrigue and entice and hold you with them. He also uses experimental techniques. At one stage, for instance, his paintings gained a new sort of luminosity from the fact that he was using a distemper-like substance which was formed from raw pigment and rabbit skin glue. Tal is also an educator. He was a professor of painting at the Kunstakademie in Dusseldorf between 2005 and 2014. And another tutor in Dusseldorf at that time was Peter Doig. And while the two artists are enormously different, what they share, I think, is a fascination with painting and its problems and a deep love of other artists' work. One of the consistent elements of Talar's work is an exhaustive approach to themes and disciplines. So he'll embark on particular discrete projects, so painting landscapes on plein air in nature, or making figure drawings and paintings directly from models that he's just met, or even tackling bronze sculpture, for instance. And then he'll mine those situations to the fullest. He'll draw everything he can from them. Nothing seems beyond the scope of his references, and that's something that, as I say, was apparent from the start when I saw a show of his work at Victoria Miro Gallery in London in 2003. That show was called Lords of Kolboinik, a Hebrew word. So I began our conversation by asking what it meant in relation to his painting, and does it still act as a kind of manifesto for his practice? The Lord of Kolboinik, I think, is around 17 years ago. And uh, I know the word Kolboinik from when, as a child, I visited family in a kibbutz. And whenever you had to go in the dining hall and clean your plate, they would say, clean it into the Kolboinik. 
So colboining means something like a collective trash, whatever. And I always kept that word. I always loved the melody of that word. And, you know, as a painter, you do what you do, but you always ask why and where from. And you try to invent all these different reasons. And if I have to go back 17 years, I thought maybe that's a good way to explain it that I fish my works out of this collective trash. Trash is maybe a bad word. I mean, the colboining is not trash for the pig or the goat. It's actually, or for many others, it's not trash. But at that time, I had this tiny mountain of just all kinds of materials in my studio. All this endless interest. And I would... Uh, Simply fish from those interests and create paintings. That was my method. I wondered if you sort of set yourself artistic challenges to a degree, because I, I saw that you, when you started making paintings from the figure, you sort of said that you did it against your better judgment to a degree. But then you've also, for instance, you made those plein air paintings and, and now you've just made a series of works in bronze. Are you almost setting yourself challenges to overcome as an artist? The first time you experience an idea, you experience something that says this is not possible. That's actually the best way an idea introduces itself in your mind, says you can't do this. And I think the challenge 20 years ago was figuration. I'm sure there are reasons, I just don't know these reasons, but we were, there was a whole generation that didn't trust eyes, nose, hands, feet, we just didn't trust them. The only way you could approach these things was kind of, you say in English, tongue-in-cheek or with irony or with a distance. You had to create some kind of distance. And I was really looking for a way where you could slide into figuration without this kind of distance, without ending in a regressive place or without just walking in footsteps of yesterday. That's kind of quite complicated because you have to start thinking about nose, mouth, eyes, ears, hands. And I think that that was quite complicated for some years. And it is still complicated. But now it's some, something that I really enjoy. I really enjoy that feeling that you look at somebody, you want to draw them and you feel lost. And it's really, I, I'm saying this completely in an honest way. Sometime when I start, if I have to draw, for instance, just somebody, I, I start like an absolutely amateur. I have no clue how to do it. I look at eyes, nose, and I, I have no method. It's like I have no craft, no nothing. And that's, uh, you get full of fear. And it's, it's productive. It's actually for the artist, it's productive to feel I'm lost. That's really interesting because I wondered if, in a way, in order to confront that anxiety in full, that's why you work in series. Because, so for instance, you did sex shops and you did a whole series of sex shops. You did the railway carriages, yes. you did a whole series of them and, and followed it through to the furthest extreme. Is that, in a way, is that, is, is that about fully confronting that anxiety that you talk about? It's, you could also use another word. It's actually to stabilise what just happened. You know, you do something and you, you step one, you take one step into the room and then you could say, I could run away now. I actually, I managed to do something that I 
in a way believe in. But I, I like to go in and stabilize what was almost just a coincidence. I like to get in and stabilize. And you get in and you develop tools in that process. And actually, you leave that with those tools. You don't leave with a certain figuration, a certain landscape. You, you, you leave with certain tools that you like to challenge in another context. So actually, you go like an ice skater from landscape to sex shop. And as an outsider, you say, what do they have in common? Actually, almost nothing beside the, the, the cruelty of flatness. But actually, you, you take one, one tool to the next. That has nothing to do with what you paint. It's actually cold. I wanted to know about, about the... You've spoken about this idea of wanting your work to be as mysterious as, to you as it is to your audience to a certain degree. And is the time when you decide that... Or, or the time when you move on from a body of work, the moment when that mystery starts to erode and you start to understand it better... It's very complicated to have mystery as an ambition. It's actually a straight road to failure. It's similar as saying you want to be sexy. That's also to say I want to be sexy. That's also a straight way to failure. Mystery and <laughs> sexiness is similar. Actually, you have to turn it around. You could also say, why is it not me interviewing you about my paintings? How come? that you and all the ears out there think that I know better about my own works. That's actually a misunderstanding. What I do is I look around and what I find mysterious, what I can't really touch, what I can't really take in, that's my ambition to paint that. And maybe sometime I am able to create this as a mystery for other people. But the first thing to do is to really admit that you are not a puppet master as an artist. I think that's a great misunderstanding that you think that the artist is somebody who's sitting with a lot of answers. Actually, you have as many questions as you and all the ears out there. So actually, I might as well be interviewing you about me as the other way around. That's really interesting. I mean, does that sort of partly explain why that retrospective of your work at the Louisiana was called the Academy of Talar? Was because it's about it's almost about a learning process as much as it is an explanatory process of your work. The guy who organized the show invented that title, and I accepted it. I thought it, in a way, makes sense. I think I all the time like to take these tools that I find and go into new kind of interests, context, whatever you can say. That's why to call it the Academy it was quite quite a maybe good idea. I'm not at all interested in the idea of learning outside making a great painting. I'm actually I'm also not interested in psychology. I'm not interested in being philosophical about it. I'm just interested in creating a new great work. And whatever takes me there, I'll do it. You know, and that means cutting off a hand, killing my dog, kissing my mom, I'll do it if it creates another great painting or drawing or sculpture. And from feeling lost and feeling like so much failure as a, as a, as a so-called young man, 
in the middle of that, you know, you could call a crossroad. You feel failure. You feel you can't do it. Really, you can't do it. I found out in the middle of this, there is a tiny door open that you can sneak into, that you can actually embrace all the things you can't do. And you can actually, you, can, you just have to play it out while you paint. And what other people, they say, oh, that's something touchy, that's something beautiful, which are very fair things to say. It's actually when you sense another person trying something that even if it fails, if you sense they tried hard and you feel them, you feel that they, that they fail. That's when we, out of the pocket, we pull out a word that says, this is so beautiful because we feel it. And also you don't want to create work that is designed. I think there's too many painters that just designs painting. And they can be very skillful. That means you take a little of this and a little of that and you combine it and you have a special way of putting the, the colors and you have your own design. And it can be great, it can look good, but actually that work will never breathe. The only way you get an artwork to breathe is by embracing that you are making it and yet you are not perfect, that you are an idiot and you try hard and you get up next morning and you try again. That's when we pull out the big sign saying, that's beautiful. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests now. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? I remember in a bookstore behind Pompidou when I was around 18, I bought a book that I still love today, and that's Rouault, the guy who painted nuns, clowns, Jesus, tiny paintings. I've seen images of him painting them on a table, and I also read that he was cruel to his daughter. Maybe that's wrong, but I always remember that. But there's something about Rouault's, I mean, you know, that the way that it's almost like stained glass, the way he divides the parts of the canvas, doesn't he? And, it, you know, thinking about Rouault in connection with your work, is it too neat to say that you learnt anything from looking at that book about the way that you in your own way could, could translate what you were thinking into physical stuff? I think from different periods of your life, you learn from artists. I mean, there are things that I learned when I was 17, Maybe I learned everything when I was 17. I just didn't know what it was. But as uh, for now, I think what you can really learn from him is banalities. That you don't need to tell very complicated stories. It's how you bend it. And actually saying that clown is still maybe a good discussion forum. Say clown. I'm going to say it with a clown, with a nun, with Jesus if that's your thing, or with with a man who's hanging from his neck. That's still very basic. And I think the older you get, the less fear you get from these basic things. When you're a younger artist, you want to invent everything. And you want to tell your story through very complicated narratives. You get older. Maybe it's just a man on ski. Maybe it's just somebody drinking a cup of tea with a weird... Something in the back. That's just something that you can't get around it. I think that's what I would learn from war today. Beside this, there's another technical thing, is how, and from war, from Beckman, from Nolde, there's many places you can learn this, is how you use black. If black is a line, or is it a field like all the other fields? 
And that sounds very technical and boring, but that's actually something you can spend many years thinking about whether two colors, they meet directly or you put a line between them. And the other possibility, the line you put between them is not a line. It's black, but it's a field. That's, you know, basically down the line, if you talk to painters, that's what they're into. Very stupid stuff. But black as a color is a really interesting... I mean, Matisse wrote that brilliant piece about black as a color, didn't he? And it talks about luminous blacks. Is black a sort of... I've heard other artists say that black is the hardest color to use in many ways. Is that your experience? In my experience, I very often fake black, which means that I would take different colors. Usually that would be very dark blue, green, purple. And I would get them so dark that actually on on a reproduction, it looks like black. But when you get close, you understand that it is actually, it's a color, but a very dark color. I don't know about black. I think uh, I very often try to take black away as an outline, as a drawing. I like the feeling of colors colliding with other colors. And in that sense, black and white can be complicated. It needs certain introductions in a painting to really get black into full play. Even more complicated is white. And if you want to really challenge yourself, try to get silver in, which is not black, not white. It's not even a color. It's more a feeling, a weird feeling. But it's interesting. It's also interesting to try to take silver underneath colors. And so it's not the white that shines through, but actually silver. But this is all the boring stuff you will have painters talk about. And it's, uh, it is a lot and it's nothing. It's only something if it transports narratives, stories, feelings. Otherwise, it's just crap. Actually, colors, techniques, oil, acrylic is all crap. It's only, it only means something if it transports meaning between people. Otherwise, it's nothing. Also, you can say that technical skills is very important. And, I, and you know what I do is I really practice and I think more about all these technical things but they only make sense if they transport something between people. Otherwise, forget about it. Which historical artists do you turn to the most today? It's a, it's a good question. And uh, there's just like a boring answer because I, I keep turning to all different kind of artists that I need something from. I think the, the pity of being a painter, at, at least the way I'm a painter, is that I... I don't go to shows to enjoy them. Like, I would even fly to any country far away and I would just to see a show, but I would only spend an hour there. And then I would go and find postcards of my favorite images. I, I just need them. I need to, to have a certain discussion. I have to look at them close. So it's hard to say because there's been these artists that I keep coming back to. And you know what? When you are younger, it's like all these kind of uh, artists from the periphery of art history. Somebody, some surrealist painter from Finland or a weird um, painter from Uganda. But actually, now it's everything that your mother also would like. All kind of boring stuff, you know, stuff that you are even embarrassed to say. You know, it all depends. If you go back to the talk about uh, colors meeting colors, there are certain artists you want to look at. If you want to look at outline, there are certain artists you want to look at. If you want to see how to deal with hands, eyes, 
there's also certain artists. So I'm sorry I can't come up with one name because not far, not long ago I I, I moved books from one room to the other. And it was interesting maybe to see which book I threw out. But actually all the books I kept is the one that is in your mother's bookshelf, I'm sure. <laughs> or any mother's bookshelf. That's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, 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 was, I, wanted to, I wondered whether you might say Marsden Hartley because it's, cause Marsden Hartley's an artist who oddly seems to come up more and more these days in terms of um, artists finding this kind of awkward but eternally fascinating element in another yeah. artist's work and it seems to me I know you spoke and there's a video online which I urge listeners to to find because you speak very powerfully about his work there yes. but one of the one of the key things is rather what you were saying earlier on about him picking sort of obvious subjects things which which you'd almost you know if you're a student you turn away from because it would seem too obvious so tell me a bit about why Hartley does why he how he gets away with that in a way but what I really enjoy in his work is that he paints what is in front of him, what catches his mind. His, it's so simple. And I think, you know, you're sitting in London, I'm sitting in Copenhagen, but anybody you talk to at the moment, there's not another time in history where you feel this collective feeling. We all feel very similar things at the moment. You can ask yourself what to do in these times where you, there's all, not all these escape rooms, no restaurants, cafes, no nightclubs, no this, no that. Look what is in front of you. Look what's possible. And what is always possible for you is just something in front of you that catches your eyes. No virus can take that away. So it sounds more simple. But I think an artist should never forget the amateur in himself. The amateur is right and the amateur is impossible. You can't stay an amateur because that's against the nature of developing. But your amateur is right because the amateur says, I'm going to make a painting. I'm going to make a painting about something that I find interesting. Actually, terribly interesting. And that you can never lose, never give away the card where you're an amateur. And that's really interesting in connection because you had a show in Hastings not long ago yes. in the, on the south coast of the UK. And there... You you focused on boats and there was this and, and there was a connection there with another amateur who's who's Alfred Wallace and I was intrigued to read that you you were, you responded to his work as well because in terms of the scale of your work and in terms of the the breadth of colour for instance there's not much in common but I, it seems to me there's a sort of directness about that you seek in your work yeah. that actually relates very directly to what Alfred Wallace was doing. You look at Wallace and he looks on a boat and the first the first thing you have to do as an artist is you have to organize too much information because anything you look at has millions of details. So the first thing is how to cut through all that information. The stupid answer is style, but style is nothing. Style is just the product of cutting away things. So what do you cut away? You cut away what you don't find interested. And you ask, how much does it take before the viewer says, oh, a boat, and even that kind of boat. And that's a very basic kind of mathematic that the artist goes through all the time. Open your window, look into a park, you're lost. There's too much information. Cezanne knew that. You know, everybody knows that there's too much. So you find your personal kind of mathematic to cut through. And sometimes you have to be very smart. 
But maybe to be smart and to be clever is a little bit what people call the, the horseshoe. They're not that far from each other. That sometime if you think a very simple way, a boat, oh, a boat uh, like this, then the viewer will say boat. Do I need more? Yeah, I need a little bit more because there's something about it. And the more you get into this kind of your artistic mathematics, maybe you can even bend the boat. Bend it towards things that has nothing to do with boat. Maybe bend it towards your fear of the sea, the fear for the big wave. Then suddenly the boat starts talking beyond just language, just representation of the boat. That's what it's all about. We don't have to talk more. That's very simple. First, you catch something and then you bend it towards what is important for you, what means something. What we, so call, what we call privacy. Because privacy is not interesting in its own form. If somebody pushed you down your bicycle as a child, it's a terrible private experience. Can't make out of it. But maybe you paint the boat and maybe somehow you can speak about all these terrible things that happen or wonderful things that happen. You can bend it towards that. That's fantastic. Um, let's talk about um, contemporary artists. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? I think uh, at the moment... The whole scene of performance is the most interesting. I think years ago, when a lot of people moved back into painting, you looked for something authentic, which is a sticky word, because how can a painting be authentic? But actually it can. It can be something that is able to communicate something between people that, is, that has a, a value. I think at the moment, the place where there is most discussion, most interesting things happening is actually performance. I'm always intrigued by that because there's an assumption among, in certain, and it's true in certain quarters of the art world, that, that, that artists are, are sort of medium-specific and, and the dialogues that they have and the interests that they have are exclusively within that area. But it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's not true of so many artists, right? Because, of course, you're painting all day, so the pursuit of other art forms is crucial to, to like keeping sane, right? Yes. I got the idea and the um, confidence in, in telling stories in the end of the 90s, not from other painters, but from video art at that moment. Because at that moment, the video artists start turning the, the, the camera towards themselves and say, okay, that's the life that I would like to have, but then there's the life that I actually have. Or actually... The parents I have, the story I have, the uncle in the forest, whatever. They started trying to use private. Because that's not so easy. Private is very complicated to use in art. It looks very obviously, but you need to be quite um, flexible. So actually my inspiration came, not, not the narratives, but the inspiration of trying to use whatever is around me came more from video in the 90s. I mean, again, as I said before, I paint all day, all, all day, all night. I think about painting. I think about how to not do what I know, but do something else. You know, you play this game all the time. But I think most painters would agree that deep down, it's not, it's not about colors and brushes and oil paint versus acrylic. It's, that's just an instrument. Also, if you ask anybody playing the guitar, they're trying to, to write a nice song. Can't be that much about how to hit certain notes. I also think that most great musicians, do they think about playing out of tune? 
I don't think so anymore. They just see the instrument as an instrument, as a, as a train, as a car, as a taxi to go somewhere. So do you have other artists' work or other forms of art pinned to your studio wall? Not in the studio. That would be very confusing. I also, in my living room, I, I don't have any of my, my own work. I have all kind of different stuff from friends and, and uh, like older work from different artists that I enjoy. It's actually very, our house is very much like a, a salon hanging of all kind of stuff. And I keep taking stuff down. I don't have any of my own work that will confuse me. The moment, I mean, even if I look at other people's work, I start working. You start playing because you know all the possibilities that they had. And think, well, why did they choose this possibility? Why not going there? And so I can handle that with other people's work on my wall, but I don't want to look at my own stuff. I'm not ready for that. Is it difficult? Because you taught at the Kunstakademie in Düsseldorf for 10 years. Yes. Was one of the challenges, in a way, how much to talk about other artists with the students and how much to allow them to find their voice without having that translated through other artists? I took a decision, because you are right, it is actually a conflict. But I took a decision to say that artists in art school, they have to talk about art and they have to look at a lot of art. But it is a decision because it will confuse you at certain times. There are certain times you don't need to take in more. But that, I think, is... That's when you talk more one-to-one -one with students. You might give them advice. Just close your eyes for a while. Just dig into your own work. But if it's decision between looking at work and not looking or talking or not talking, talk and look. Look so much that you get so confused. That's what art school is about. You can't have an art school where you say, you shouldn't look at art, you should just look into yourself. What to look at, you know? You have to really play with a lot of artists. Take them into your personal discussion and also feel the weight of them. Feel that Gaston is killing you for two years or whoever will kill you for a few years. And understand that you don't, from other artists, you don't learn, learn forms and shapes. You don't learn that. You learn method. And the, the moment you can understand an artist is built of forms, take them away. That, that's just his example of a method. Just go for the method. You can really start learning from other artists. But probably you should forget about the forms for a while. Even forget about the name. The name is also working against you. Just look at, look at method. Get a teacher that can... Point towards what kind of method? How do they deal with the situation that I explained before? You, something happened to you. You know, you have all these art students says, oh, my, this and this died. And it's the most important thing. Is I'm so traumatized by that. I want to make a painting. And you look at them and say, go paint a flower in a pot and tell the story about the death. Otherwise, forget it. You are not Jesus or Buddha. Or if you are, maybe you, maybe you can do it then. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. The app offers access to numerous cultural institutions through a single download. Among those institutions is Camden Arts Centre and the Contemporary Art Gallery in North London, where Tellar had a memorable solo exhibition in 2008 and showed again in a group show in 2016. 
In the app, you can find in-depth information on other exhibitions at the centre, so you can watch a curator's walkthrough of the exhibition The Botanical Mind, Art, Mysticism and the Cosmic Tree. You can look at individual works in the show and see how they're displayed within the exhibition in installation shops. And the themes and ideas that inform The Botanical Mind are further explored in a complementary digital project that includes a series of conversations featuring writers and researchers like Celine Bauman and Michael Marder, which you can listen to in the app, along with a variety of of other audio material. For more content and to explore guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. You can find the app at app.bloombergconnects.org slash a brushwith. Let's talk about museums and galleries. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? I mean, before, I, whenever I visit a city, I would go to all these kind of... Um, Oh, that's a difficult word to say in English. These kind of museums where you have historical objects, folk art and anthropological places. Then around 12 years ago, I would go more to like regular art museums. I would start looking at art, everything after 1850. Not, I'm not that interested in stuff before. I'm interested at the point where, you know, where camera starts getting start messing people's life up and where suddenly the Pope, the church, the, the noble people, they had, they, they didn't, art was not for them anymore. It was just for the people or anybody who wanted. My interest in art starts from that period. Before that, it's more folk art, more carpets or just stuff people had or people would decorate their houses or ships with, something like that. Today, I, I go to all kinds of museums. I, I really, I think I, only 10 years ago, I really started going to museums like that. Um, and I like to go back to museums, look at the same works again and again. And again, as I said before, I, I don't sit down with my lunch bag and look at them, if you were allowed to eat your lunch bag in a museum. I simply, I just, I just go close to them, just stare them in the eyes, you know, like an animal. <laughs> And then I walk away, buy a postcard, cup of coffee. And um, which cultural experience changed the way that you see the world? A cultural experience that shaped me was all the rejections I got when I wanted to be an artist. I don't say that rejection is good, but it's actually a reality for most of us. It took me three times before I was accepted into art school. And I, I didn't enjoy that. And I, I don't want that to happen to other people. But it actually made my, how do you say, teeth sharp. It made me into kind of a beast that, I have, that has been productive for me ever since. I think if I would have been accepted as a 20-year-old, I would have been lost in there. What to do in there? So as a cultural experience, I have to say that one of them, rejection, wasn't that bad. And there was early in your career, you, there was a lot of searching for what you wanted to do, wasn't there? Some artists have this experience where they know. I mean, Howard Hodgkin said that he wanted to be an artist from the age of five. You know, yeah. Picasso clearly had his mind set on being an artist from childhood. But you had a very sort of complicated um, gestation as, as an artist, didn't you? I mean, I left, that would be high school almost. Or I left when I was... 18. I just left school in the middle of it. And I actually just needed uh, an excuse 
for my parents because they were looking at me with horror. And I said, oh, I've always been drawing. I'm going to go to art school. And then I went to art school. But the moment I walked into art school, everything that was to do with art and drawing and painting left me. And it was very frustrating for many years. It, it, I really, really disliked drawing and painting. And I, it was very confusing. And there were actually outside reasons why I kept going. It was never because I felt something. I didn't feel anything for art. But as a child, I grew up feeling a lot for drawing. But that was like a nameless practice. It had no name. It was just how you, what you would do in the afternoon. Today, kids, they play computer games. But at that time, you would just draw planes that bomb cities. Or you could draw whatever scared you or you were interested in. And then in my 20s, I start very simple thinking, you know, what, if I'm going to be an artist, what should art be about? And I thought art should be whatever you need to do. And that was an experience I had as a child, that you sit down, you put a piece of paper in front of you, and you draw what you need to draw. A little bit similar when you go to bed at night, you don't decide what you dream. And I hope that technology will never invent anything that you can decide what you want to dream. That's actually the beauty of it, that it's a free fall. You don't decide, you dream what you need to dream about. So in my 20s, I was thinking, I, wanna, I want art to be what is necessary for me to do. It had to be like this. You put a piece of paper in front of you and you ask yourself, what can you actually do now? What's possible for you without, without force, without too many I'd say, identity ambitions? What can you actually do? If it's somebody cutting out another person's head with a chainsaw, that's what you're going to do. As a kid, this was what was possible for me to do all these kind of horror things. And there is something that you can actually learn from that. You know, you do what is necessary to, for you to do. You never go completely wrong if your subject is something that is deeply important, interesting for you. It will still create a lot of problems for you because you can be... You can be less flexible if there's something that you desire, but it's a good starting point. Let's talk about literature now. Um, which writers or poets do you turn to the most? I mean, there's one book that I, I kept reading and I, I keep like... Um, making notes in this book, and I, that's um, Bruno Schulz. Bruno Schulz did a book called Cinnamon Shops, which is this weird story of a house where the father of the house is actually, you would in a modern way say that he's turning crazy. But this is never, never what this book is about. It's simply just when you look at reality from different perspectives and there's nobody explaining you, now you're in this perspective of what we call madness. And then there's all these birds. There's all these birds in the, in the, in the house and all these eggs. And I, I keep going back to this book. This book is still a mystery. Bruno Schulz was a drawing teacher. He was shot during the Second World War, probably for some misunderstanding. 
That's the worst. Imagine to be shot because of misunderstandings. I guess many people in history are shot because of misunderstandings. How can you even have a reason for shooting somebody? So every bullet fired is a misunderstanding. So Bruno Schulz, highly recommend cinnamon shops. And you made a body of work in response to it, didn't you? I made all these birds and I, I needed to have names for the birds. And I, I went through that book and I took out all these names so I named all these, it's not that many birds, but it's birds in cages. And I, I gave them all names from that book. It's not something that is terribly important. But on the other hand, I think if I can mention this book, maybe somebody will read it and enjoy it as much as I did. For a while, I, I read everything. That he didn't write that many books, but I read everything I could find from Sebald, who's a really interesting writer. And he also is a writer that, that in a very interesting way walks between image and, and word. He would write a long explanation and then there's an there's a image that only your imagination can connect. So in a very, in a great way, he always makes you work as a reader. Also, when you read Sebald, there's, there's never this precise moral. You're always standing with something in your hand you don't know really where to place. Again, a great way to make you work. He tells you a story about a, something happens to somebody, but there's never a real ending. There's never the real drama. You're always standing with half of the story in your own imagination. And it's a great, that's something you play with a lot as a painter because you only have one image. So everything that actually touches people is, is actually what they imagine outside the canvas. That was just something I invented now. The thing about Sabre, like in Rings of Saturn, one of the things I was conscious of when, when I read it was that you can almost feel the work forming in front of you as you're reading. And I loved that, the way that it somehow the method and the, the object were the, absolutely the same thing. Was that your experience, that, you, that, that sort of insight into, into the actual process of thinking? You know? Yes. It's like he is in a very brilliant way walking and you follow his walking. Sebal is also writing about Bruce Chatwin, who is also another where you, you feel he's walking and you feel truths, almost truths are there, or truths are lying at least. It's always a game. So it's always, it's never about, you, you're not asking for honesty. Honesty is something between people in a kitchen talking or in bed. You need honesty, sometime at least. But actually, from paintings and book and music, you don't need honesty. You need a good story. And this you, this you feel with Bruce Chatwin. You feel he's walking and he's playing games. Sebald is also playing games, but in a, in, a, in a more academic way. But there's still such a pleasure to follow his game. Once I, I did a mistake. I went on the internet and I, I wrote Sebald. And there's an interview where he speaks about his method. Never do that. Because I would do that with art, with painters. I would, I would be interested in, in listening to them to explain how they do it. But that's because I, I don't have the same kind of pleasure in painting that I have from literature. Literature, I want to be fooled. Please fool me. Please, you know, seduce me. I just want to stay out there enjoying it. I don't want to know anything about Sebald's method. I just want to, I just want to be on the pages, frying on the pages. That's great. Going back to, to Schultz, 
I read that he wrote about childhood as the age of genius. And I was I was intrigued by that in connection with your work because I don't know where you stand on childlikeness as a sort of positive virtue because there are some elements of your work which hint at a sort of childlike expression, but then at the same time it's deeply sophisticated. So what what is your attitude to a kind of childlike uh, language, if you like? There is a place where image and photography, they kind of play. But there's actually also a place where drawing, let's say drawing, and language also cross lines. Everybody, anybody drawing for a long time feel this as a almost mysterious place. Similar when Chinese people developed language, writing language, you know, the, the letters. They went from a drawing from nature and suddenly... The connection to the drawing is not there anymore. It's just a letter where only if you know it, you understand this was a, a cloud. So there are things between drawing and language. I always felt that I wanted to get close to language whenever I did a drawing or a painting. And actually, from that place came the idea of childish. Because I'm not really interested in child children's work or anything like that. I'm not also trying to be a child or anything. That's all from cliches. But when you want to reach out and you say, I can't say the sentence, but I want, you know, to be as close to a sentence, it can actually look childish. You know, behind in the studio now, I have some woodcuts that I'm working on. And it's very simple. It's, it's the sun going up and a bird falling down. So I know already now these woodcuts are called sun goes up, bird falls down. And, you know, I get so excited about this idea that there is nothing more for me. There is nothing more for me than the idea of the sun going up and the bird falling down. I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's another thing to say. You know, everybody has a childhood and it's, it's far away. But every time you experience something that is, you know, you, you walk close to the sea and you see the moon reflecting in the sea and you stop, that's actually a childhood. That's, you can be 50 years old and you can have a, a moment of childhood again. I saw something and it, it makes me speechless. Maybe this is what we love so much about childhood, that we experience stuff without language. But this can still happen, and it still happens, not for very special people, for all of them. Just, I guess, some people collect them. Some people, they use them. When you experience things that makes you quiet, that's also why we should think a little bit about the questions we ask artists. And the art, no, even more important, the artists should think about what they say. They should ask back, why don't I make an interview with you about my work? Because... What if the dilemma is that the greater an artwork is, the more quiet it makes everybody? What are we going to talk about? Are we going to sit here, 50 years old, with grey beard and invent all these explanations? You know, to say Kolboinik was actually just to invent something because people ask me. And if you are 30 years old, you, you don't want to be completely a fool. So you start inventing, playing around with ideas. But what if, you know, the real situation is, Anything that makes you quiet is good for art, and every great artwork makes you quiet. We're all going to be unemployed. 
<laughs> Let's talk about music. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? I mean, there's two types of music. There's music in the studio that I... And everybody, if there's other people in the studio, they all know that I decide music here. Because there's, there's a lot of music I can't hear. You know, somebody that is always present here is, is just very stupid. It's Bach. Because his music is so right, left, right, left. And it's... I can't hear big symphonies or very romantic music. I can hear, it's terrible, I can hear very sad music, but not very romantic music, if there is a difference between these things. Bach is always here. Sings with few instruments. Any amazing voice can go in the studio as well. Sometimes even some music for dancing, but I mean, you can dance to anything. But at home it's different. At home I listen more to what my wife is playing because she has a extraordinary sense for bittersweet pop music and I really love that. Do you have different like modes in the making of a work where a different kind of music will propel you to produce a different kind of emotion in the work or feeling? Recently I found all Christian music from Ethiopia where they sing in a very deep voice. And you understand that this music just confuses you in a good way. This music, I, but I, 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 won't, I, I won't be so specific to say that when you're at the last breath of the painting, then you put up Beethoven. It, it doesn't go like that. You, you put up, sometimes you will even play music to kind of create a wall around you. So dogs, people, other animals will not uh, disturb you. There are certain musicians, you know, that you, I keep listening to. You know, it's, it's rare that sometimes you will listen to somebody and say, I, I just like the sound of it, but I would never listen to the lyrics. But there are certain kind of musicians where you said, I still love every song by them. There's somebody like, you know, Stephen Merritt, 69 Love Songs. It's an amazing. I still enjoy Bonnie Prince Billy. I enjoyed him since art school, but Nick Drake... He's still good, up for a good, sad song. And if you're in London, Sandy Denny is great. I think she's better without Fairport Convention. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as a kind of essential ritual? Bad brushes. Dirty bad brushes. That's actually, I think if you, if I should say the secret about my work is bad brushes. I never clean brushes. They are always in the same oil. And that means, you know, if people, they think, oh, Tell has great colors, or if they think I have bad colors, because I never clean my brushes, there's always something from yesterday. That's interesting, because, I mean, it depend, I guess it depends which medium you're using. So if you're using the distempery medium, so it's the pigment and the rabbit skin glue, then the, then the, then the brush is going to feel different than if you've used acrylic the day before, right? Or, do, or does that not matter? If I use uh, rabbit skin glue and pigments, which I haven't done now for quite a while, I stopped that like four years ago. That process, everything is always in water. Actually, I started playing around with with rabbit skin glue and pigments because I, I was interested in more fluid, transparent painting, less clumsy painting. So when you have everything in water, that means you always have 
clean brushes within reach. So I can't say that about those paintings. With oil, dirty brushes. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? I can't remember the artist, but I heard about that there was an artist and he painted Jesus on ski going downhill. It's such a terrible idea, but it's also just the perfect thing. Jesus on ski. Yeah, I could live with that forever. <laughs> and lastly, what's art for? I mean, sometimes art is just to make everything more complicated. But complicated is, uh, you can't say that complicated or when you feel lost, it's good in itself. So art should kick, first make you maybe go lost, get lost, but it should also point towards an unspecific possibility of walking forward. Sometimes, you know, a painting can just be terribly beautiful. It makes you so quiet and you feel so lost because of this beauty. I think that's, that can be a revolution. Something so beautiful that your arms go down and you don't know what to say and you just want to go to bed with french fries or whatever. What a great note to end on. Tell, thank you so much. Thank you. An exhibition of new paintings and drawings by Tellar called Home Alone is the opening show at Ordrupgard in Charlottenland near Copenhagen, opening on the 20th of May, Tellar's birthday. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a look at the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper Podcasts are Judy Mahalska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentall, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalal. Big thanks to Talar. We'll be back next week with a brush with the American artist Charles Gaines. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.